Welcome to episode 10 of SEC Horror, known better as Southeastern Conference Horror. I am your host, Nikki Horror, and today we'll be reading the story, A Collapse of Horses by Brian Evenson. This story has been drawn from February and March issue of the American Reader. Available here with a clickable link. It is, and it's available on theamericanreader.com. Fade in. Story begins. I am certain nobody in the family survived. I am certain they all burned that their faces blackened and bubbled, just as did my own. But in their case, they did not recover, but perished. You are not one of them. You cannot be, for if you were, you would be dead. Why you choose to pretend to be, and what you hope to gain from it, this is what's interesting to me. Now, It's your turn to listen to me, to listen to my proofs. Though I know you will be not convinced. Imagine this, walking through the countryside one day, you come across a paddock lying there on their sides in dust, unnaturally still all four horses, all four are prone with no horses standing. They do not breathe and do not, as far as you can see, move. They, to all appearances, are dead. And yet, on the edge of the paddock, not 20 yards distance, a man fills their roof with water. Are the horses still alive and appears deceptive? Has the man simply not turned to see that the horses are dead? Or has he been so shaken by what has happened that he doesn't know what to do but proceed as if nothing has happened at all? If you turn and walk hurriedly on, leaving before anything decisive happens, what do the horses become for you? They remain both alive and dead, which makes them not quite alive nor quite dead, and in turn, carrying that paradoxical knowledge in your head, what does that make you? I do not think of myself as special, as anything but ordinary. I completed a degree at a third-tier university housed in the town where I grew up. I graduated safely, unskinned, and unscathed. In the middle of my class, I found passable employment in the same town. I met a woman. I married her. We had children. With her, three or perhaps four. There was some disagreement on that score. And then the two of us fell gradually and gently out of love. 
Then came the incident at work, an accident, a so-called freak one. It left me with a broken skull, and for a short time, a certain amount of confusion. I awoke in an unfamiliar place to find myself strapped down. It seemed to me, I, I, I will admit this too, it seemed for some time, horses at least, perhaps even days, that I was not in a hospital at all, but in a mental facility. But my wife, faithful and ever-present, slowly soothed me into different understanding of my circumstances. My limbs, she mirrored it, were restrained simply because I had been delirious. Now that I no longer was, the straps could be loosened. Not quite yet, but soon. There was nothing to worry. Nothing to worry about at all. I just had to calm down. Calm down soon. Then everything would, would return back to normal. In some ways, I suppose everything did. Or at least tried to. After the accident, I received some minor compensation from my employer and was sent out to the pasture. Such was the situation. Myself, my wife, my children, at the beginning of a hot and sweltering summer, crammed in the house together with nowhere to go. I would awaken each day to find the house different from how it had been the day before. A door was in the wrong place. A window had been stretched a few inches longer than it had been when I had gone to bed the night before. The light switch, I was certain, had been forced half an inch to the right. Always just a small thing, almost nothing at all, but just enough for me to notice. In the beginning, I tried to point these changes out to my wife. She seemed puzzled at first, and she became somewhat evasive in her response. For a time, part of me believed her responsible. Perhaps she had developed some deaf technique for quickly changing and modifying the house, but another part of me felt certain, or nearly so, that this was impossible. And then as time went on, my wife's evasiveness took on a certain weariness, even fear. This convinced me that not only was she not changing the house, but that daily her mind simply adjusted to the changed world and dubbed it the same. She literally could not see the differences I saw. Just as she not see that sometimes we had three children and sometimes four. No, she could only ever see three or perhaps four. To be honest, I don't remember how many she saw. But the point was, as long as we were in the house, there were sometimes three children and sometimes four. But that was due to the idiosyncrasy of the house as well. I would not know how many children were there would be i went from room to room sometimes the room at the end of the hall was narrow and had one bed in it other times it had grown large and in the night it had two 
I would not count the number of beds each morning when I woke up anymore. And sometimes there would be three, sometimes four. From there, I could extrapolate how many children I had. I found this a more reliable method than trying to count the children themselves. I would never know how much of a father I was until I counted beds. I could not discuss this with my wife. I tried to lay my proofs on her. She thought I was joking. Quickly, however, she decided it was an indication of troubled mental state and insisted I seek treatment, which under duress, I did. To little avail, the only thing the treatment convinced me of was that there were certain things that one shouldn't say even to one's spouse. Things that are just not ready and may never be ready to be heard. My children were not ready for it either. The few times I tried to fulfill the duties of a father and sit them down and tell them the sobering truth that sometimes one of them didn't exist unless it was sometimes one of them did exist twice, I'd go nowhere or less than nowhere. Confusion, tears, panic, and after they reported back to my wife threats of more treatment. What then was the truth of the situation? Why was I the only one who could see the house changing? What were my obligations to my family in terms of helping to see and make them understand how was I to help them if they did not desire to be helped? Being a sensible man, a part of me couldn't help but wonder if what I was experiencing had any relation to reality at all. Perhaps there was something wrong with me. Perhaps I had tried to believe the accident had changed me. I did try my level best, or nearly so, to see things their way. I tried to ignore the lurch reality took each morning the way the house was not exactly it it had been the night before if someone had moved us to a similar but not quite identical house as we slept perhaps they had i tried to believe that i had three not four children and when that did not work that i had four not three children and when that didn't work there was no correlation between children and beds to turn blind eyes to that room at the end of the hall and the way it kept expanding out of collapsing in like a lung, but nothing seemed to work. I could not believe. Perhaps if we moved, things would be different. Perhaps the house in some manner or other alive or haunted maybe or just wrong. But when I raised the idea of moving my wife, she coughed out strange barking laughs before enumerating all the reasons that this was a bad idea. There was no money and little prospect of any coming in now that I have my accident and lost my job. We'd bought the house recently enough that we would take a substantial loss if we sold it we simply could not afford to move and besides what was wrong with the house 
It was a perfectly good house. How can I argue with this? From her perspective, of course, she was right. There was no reason to leave. For her, there was nothing wrong with the house. How could there be? Houses don't change on their own, she told me indignantly. This was not something that reason could allow. But for me, that was exactly the problem. The house, for reasons I didn't understand, wasn't acting like a house. I spent days thinking, mulling over what to do to get away from the house. I wandered alone in the countryside. If I walked along enough, I could return home sufficiently exhausted to sleep rather than spending much of the night on watch trying to capture the moment when parts of the house changed. For a long time, I thought that might be enough. That if I spent as little time in the house as possible and returned only exhausted, I could bring myself not to think about how unsound the house had become. That I would wake up sufficiently hazy to no longer care what was where and how different from before. That might have gone on for a long time, even forever, or the equivalent of it. But then in my walks I stumbled upon, or perhaps was led to something. It was a padlock. I saw horses lying in the dirt, seemingly dead. They couldn't be dead, could they? I looked to see if I could tell if they were breathing and found that I could not. I could not say honestly if they were dead or alive, and I still cannot say. I noticed a man on the far side of the paddock filling the through with water facing away from them and wondered if he had seen the horses behind him. If not, when he turned where they would be unsettled as I, would he approach them and determine that they were dead? Or would his approach startle them to life? Or had he seen them dead already? And had his mind been unable to take it in? For a moment I waited. But at the time, in the moment, there seemed something more terrible, more sinister about the idea of knowing for certain that the horses were dead. That there was about not knowing whether they were dead or alive. And so I hastily left, not realizing that to escape a moment of potential discomfort, I was leaving them forever in my head as not quite dead, but in another sense, nearly alive. That two leaves, as I had, was to assume the place of the man beside trough, but without ever being able to turn and learn the truth. In the days that followed, he imagined haunting. I turned it over, scrutinized it, peered at it, ever faced of it, trying to see if there was even something I had missed, if there was a clue that would sway me toward believing horses were alive or believing they were dead, if there was a clue to reveal to me that the man beside the trough knew more than I had believed to no avail. The problem remained 
insolubly balanced. If I went back, I couldn't, could not ask for help. Asking myself, would anything have changed if I did? Would those horses still even now be lying there? If they were, would they have begun to decay in a way that would prove them dead? Or would they be exactly as I had last seen them, including the man still filling the trough? What a terrifying thought, scrambling through my brain over and over, driving me crazy. Since I stumbled upon the batting, I didn't know exactly where it was. Every walk I went on, on every step I took away from the house, I risked stumbling onto it. I began walking slower, stopping frequently, scrutinizing my surroundings and shying away from any area that might be remotely harbored to pot it. But after a while, I deemed even that insufficiently safe, I find myself hardly able to leave the house and yet with the house always changing I couldn't remain there either there was a gradually realization a simple choice either I would have to steal myself and return and confront the horses or I would have to confront the house either horse or house either house or horse but what sort of choice was that? The words were hardly different, pronounced, more or less the same, with one letter only having accidentally been dialed up too high or too low in the alphabet. No, I came to feel by going out to avoid the house and finding the horses I had in a manner of speaking, S simply finding again the house. It was... It must be that the prone horse were there for me to teach a lesson to me, that they were meant to tell me something about their near namesakes to the house. The devastation of the scene, the collapse of the horses gone me. It was telling me something, something I sure wasn't I wanted to hear. At first, part of me resisted the idea. No, I told myself, it was too extreme to step. Lives were at stake. The lives of my wife and of the least three children, maybe four, the risks were too great. But what was I to do? In my mind, I kept seeing the collapsed horse, and I felt my thoughts again churn over their state. Were they alive? Or were they dead? I kept imagining myself at the trough, paralyzed, unable to turn and look, and it came to me to see that my mind, that my perpetual condition in my worst moments, it seemed the state not only of me, but of the whole world, with all of us on the verge of turning around and finding the dead behind us. And from there, I slipped back to the house, which, like the horses, seemed in a sort of suspended state. I knew it was changing, that something strange was happening. I was sure of that, at least, but I didn't know how 
or what the changes meant. I couldn't make anyone else see them. When it came to the house, I tried to convince myself that I could see what others could not. But the rest of the world was like the man filling the horse trough, unable to see the fallen horses. Thinking this has naturally led me away from the idea of the house and back instead to the horses, what should I have done? I told myself was to have thrown a rock. I should have stooped and scraped the dirt until my fingers closed around a stone and then shielded at one of the horses waiting either for a meaty thud or dead flesh or a shudder and a annoyed wicker of a strucking living horse. Not knowing is something you can only suspend yourself in for the briefest moment. The not knowing is over 75% of mental institutions. No, even if what you have to face is horrible, is an inexplicable dead herd of horses, even an inexplicably dead family, it must be faced. And so I turned away from the house and went back to look for the padding, stealing myself for whatever I would find. I was ready, rock in hand. I would find out the truth about the horses and I would accept it no matter what, or at least I would have. But no matter how hard I looked, no matter how long I walked, I could not find the paddock. I walked for miles, days even. I took every road, known and unknown, but it simply was not there. Was something wrong with me? Had the paddock existed at all, I wondered. Was it simply something in my mind? Had it invented to cope with the problems of the house? House, horse, horse, house. Almost the same word. For all intents and purposes, in this case, it was the same. I would still throw a rock, so to speak, I told myself. But I would throw that so-called rock, not at a horse, but at a house. But still, I hesitated, thinking, planning. Night after night, I sat imagining coils of smoke withering around me. And then, the rising of the flames. In my head, I watched myself waiting patiently, calmly, until the flames were at just the right height. And then I began to call out to my family, awakening them, urging them to leave the house. In my head, we unfurled sheets the windows and shim nimbly to safety. When we reached safety every time, I saw our escape so many times in my head, rendered in just the same way that I realized it would take the smallest effort on my part to jostle it out of the realm of imagination and into the real world. Then the house would be gone and could do me no more damage, and both myself and my family would be safe. I had had enough unpleasant interaction with those who desired to give me treatment since my accident. However, that I knew to take steps to protect myself, I would have to make fire 
looked like an accident. For this purpose, I took up smoking. I planned carefully. I smoked for a few weeks, just long enough to accustom my wife and children to the idea. They didn't care for it, but did not try to stop me. Since my accident, they had been shy of me and rarely tired tired of seeing me from doing anything. Seemingly, a concession to my wife, I agreed not to smoke in the bedroom. I promised to smoke only outside the house with the proviso that if it was too cold to smoke outside, I might do so downstairs near an open window. During the third or perhaps fourth week after I took up smoking, my wife and children asleep. It was indeed too cold, or at least I judged that I could argue it to have been such up confronted after the fact. So I crapped open the window near the couch and I prepared the images in my mind. I would, I told myself, allow my arm to droop the tip of my cigarette to nudge against the fabric of the couch and then all would allow first the couch and then the drapes to begin to smoke and catch fire. I would wait until the moment when in my fantasies I was myself standing and calling for my wife and children and then I would do just that. All would allow me to be safe. I had envisioned it. Soon, my family and I would be safe and the house would be destroyed. Once that was done, I thought perhaps I could would find the paddock again as well, with the horses standing this time clearly alive. And yet the fabric of the couch did not catch fire, instead smoldering and stinking, and soon I pressed the cigarette too deeply, and it died. I found and lit another, and when the result was the same, I gave up on both the couch and the cigarette. I turned instead to matches and used them to ignite the drapes. As it turned out, these burned much better going up all at once and lightening my hair and clothing along them. By the time I'd flattered it about enough to extinguish my body, the whole room was aflame. Still, I continued with my plan. I tried to call my wife and children, but when I took a breath to do so, my lungs filled with smoke and choking. I collapsed. I do not know how I lived through the fire. Perhaps my wife dragged me out and then went back for the children and perished only then. When I awoke, I was here, unsure of how I had arrived. My face and body were badly burned and the pain was ever so excruciating. I asked about my family but the nurse dodged the question, shushed me, and only told me I should sleep. This was how I knew my family was dead, that they had been lost in the fire, and that the nurse 
didn't know how to tell me. My only consolation was that the house too, the source of all our problems, had burnt to the ground. For the time, I was kept alone, drugged, how long I cannot say, perhaps days, perhaps weeks, perhaps months. Long enough in any case for my burns to slough and heal. For the skin grafts that I most surely have needed to take effect for my hair to grow fully black. The doctors have worked very hard on me. For I must admit that I accept to the most malicious eyes. I look exactly as I had before. So you see, I have the truth straight in my hand, and it will not be easy to change. There is little point in coming to me with these stories, little point in pretending once again that my house remained standing, and I was never touched by a flame, little point in coming here pretending to be my wife, claiming that there was no fire that you found me laying on the floor in the middle of the living room with my eyes staring fixedly into the air, seemingly unharmed. No, I have accepted that I am a victim of a tragedy, one of my own design. I know that my family is gone, and though I do not yet understand why you would want to convince me that you are my wife, what you hope to gain eventually, I will. You will let something slip, and the game will be over. At worst, you are deliberately trying to deceive me so as to gain something from me. But what? At best, someone has decided that this might lessen the blow that if I can be made to believe my family is not dead, or even just mostly dead and not quite alive, I might be convinced not to surrender, not to despair. Trust me, whether you wish me good or ill, I hope you succeed. I would like to be convinced. I truly would. I would love to open my eyes and suddenly see my family surrounding me safe and sound. I would even tolerate the fact that the house is still standing, that un- Finished business remains between it and myself. That somewhere, horses still lie collapsed and waiting to either alive or dead. That will all in the same sense remain like the man at the trough with our backs turned. I understand what I might have to gain from it. But you, I still do not understand. But do your worst. Disrupt my certainty. Try to fool me. Make me believe. Get me to believe there is nothing dead behind me. If you can make that happen, I think we both agree. Then anything is possible.